This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, activist Mary Church Terrell's 1923 fight against the United Daughters of the Confederacy's attempt to build a black mammy statue in Washington, D.C. University of Delaware professor Allison Parker describes how Terrell, a civil rights activist and suffragist, organized opposition and successfully prevented the statue from being built. Hello, I'm Allison Parker and I teach at the University of Delaware. Welcome to this session of History 633, my graduate course in modern American history. In this course, we've been reading and thinking about race, gender, and social protest movements, including those for women's rights and civil rights. Today, we're going to be adding the issue of representations, Confederate lost cause monuments in particular, to discuss how they display power and were used to shape our understanding of American history. The debates we'll be discussing about monuments and memorialization from the late 19th to the early 21st century can help us put our continuing debate over the meaning and power of public monuments into a longer and more informed historical perspective. In this lecture, I'll delve into the story of what one proposed monument meant to the civil rights activist and feminist, Mary Church Terrell, especially in light of her own family's history of enslavement. In 1923, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, or UDC, pressed lawmakers in the United States to create a pass a bill to create a monument to the faithful colored mammies of the South. Whereas in 1913, white women had unsuccessfully sought to keep black women out of Washington DC's national suffrage parade, a decade later, they tried to fix them permanently in a subordinate though ostensibly celebrated position on a monument in the nation's capital. To make sense of this, I'll be taking a couple of steps back in time from 1923. First, let's go back to 1894. That is the year when the United Daughters of the Confederacy was founded. The UDC raised funds to build Confederate memorials and not coincidentally, they often placed loyal slave plaques side by side uh, near the Confederate memorials. These celebrations of the loyalty of formerly enslaved people implied that they had been happier in subordination, were still unequal, and so should be segregated and treated as inferiors. In addition to these loyal slave plaques, many formal monuments to faithful slaves were proposed. Three were actually built, including the Faithful Slave Monument in Fort Mill, South Carolina. Noting the timeline of 1895, including the UDC's 1894 founding, it really exposes the untruths of those who describe Confederate monuments as innocuous celebrations of Southern heritage. In fact, the great majority of Confederate monuments were not erected by grieving widows or relatives immediately after the Civil War. A majority were put up in the 1890s and early 1900s by Southern whites hoping to justify the spread of Jim Crow while erasing the positive legacy of Reconstruction as a time when African Americans had gained citizenship and voting rights. Black women like Mary Church Terrell recognized lost cause memorials as hurtful public symbols of white supremacy. Perhaps not surprisingly, the United Daughters of the Confederacy's most successful effort to memorialize enslavement at the national level materialized during the presidency of Woodrow Wilson, the first Southern president since Andrew Johnson. President Wilson formally institutionalized segregation in the federal government. During his administration, pro-segregationists in high-level government positions also regularly spoke to reporters of their memories of their own supposedly contented and beloved former mammies. This nostalgia was meant to disarm critics of their racist policies. Historian uh, Grace Hale notes that 
A black mammy craze swept through the South and indeed the nation between the 1890s and 1920, when the black mammy became the crucial nurturer, protector and teacher of white children. Southern white UDC women had spent the early years of the 20th century raising funds so that the Arlington National Cemetery could for the first time become the site of a major Confederate memorial. The formal 1914 unveiling ceremony was provided over by President Wilson, who called it an emblem of a reunited people, clearly referring to white people. The sculptor was a former Confederate soldier, Moses Ezekiel, who positioned an idealized white woman on the top of the pedestal as what he called the New South personified. He also said that he included quote unquote faithful black servants because he wanted to undermine what he called the lies told about the South and slavery in Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. He hoped the monument could help rewrite history correctly, as he put it, to depict enslaved people's ostensible support for the Confederate cause. The figures in high relief on the cylindrical mount are intended to represent the sacrifices, devotion, and heroism of all social classes and races in the Southern Confederacy. This includes images of loyal slaves, including one in which a Confederate, a white Confederate military officer is kissing his infant child goodbye. The baby is held in the arms of a weeping black mammy while another white child clings to her skirts. The sculptor and the UDC women who commissioned the monument reconfigured forced labor as a form of maternal love while commemorating the supposed fidelity of enslaved people. Now I'll take a few more steps back. First, I'll provide some idea of who Mary or Molly Church Terrell was, and then I'll discuss her family history. Will, which will help us to better understand her fierce determination to publicly reject the Black Mammy Monument. Like most Black women, Terrell recognized the Black Mammy and loyal slave myths as attempts to justify enslavement and further institutionalize white supremacy. She also had personal reasons to oppose the Black Mammy Monument and white's nostalgia for slavery. Those reasons are rooted in her and her husband's family histories, as well as in their interactions with the white families that had enslaved them and their ancestors. Molly Church was born in the middle of the Civil War in 1863 in Memphis, Tennessee. In spite of having spent the first two years of her life enslaved, Molly Church grew up in a privileged household. She learned how to use her class privilege, education, light skin color, and cross-class and cross-race connections in tactical ways to work on a wide range of social justice and civil rights causes. As an adult, Terrell lived in Washington, D.C. for over 60 years, working as an educator, journalist, public speaker, political campaign organizer, and civil rights activist. She brought her energy, leadership, and determination through to the post-Civil War uh, civil rights movement after winning a 1953 legal challenge to District of Columbia segregation in shops and restaurants in the US Supreme Court, Terrell lived just long enough into her 90th year to see the court issue its 1954 landmark decision in Brown v. Board of Education. Some of you might be familiar with Terrell's life, especially since I do talk about it sometimes in this class, but just in case, uh, some are unfamiliar with her, I'll provide a brief overview. In 19, 1895, Terrell, an educator who had earned a bachelor's and a master's degree from Oberlin College, was appointed as the first Black woman on the District of Columbia's Board of Education. The next year, she was elected as the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW. And in 1909, Terrell helped found the NAACP. 
during World War I, she picketed the White House for women's suffrage with the National Women's Party and created the Wage Earners Association to encourage labor unionization among Black women workers. In the 1920s, she was a founding member of a group that opposed American and European imperialism that called itself the International Council of Women of the Darker Races. In the 1930s, she joined with the Communist Party's International Labor Defense on behalf of poor African-Americans treated unfairly by the criminal justice system, such as the Scottsboro Nine. In the 1940s, Terrell helped A. Philip Randolph organize the March on Washington movement, initiated a lawsuit to integrate the American Association of University Women, and supported striking Black cafeteria workers who were resisting signing anti-communist pledges. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, Terrell spoke before congressional committees in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. She also chaired two important committees affiliated with the Civil Rights Congress, an organization backed by the Communist Party. One committee demanded freedom for a Black sharecropper, Rosalie Ingram, and her sons, who had struck out in self-defense, but had been wrongly convicted of murdering her white assailant. The other committee's direct action protests and legal challenges successfully dismantled segregation in the nation's capital. Over the course of her long life, Terrell's range of activism and alliances was extraordinary. And yet, until now, she had not been the subject of a full-length biography written for adults. She has been the subject of several biographies written for children and young adults, interestingly enough. Telling more, her story more completely motivated me to write my new biography of her, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. Part of telling the story of Molly Church and her activism means delving into her family's history of enslavement. Even as a child, racism shaped her understanding of herself and her world and made her determined to assert her own value as a human being through her civil rights work. Her father was Robert Reed Church, who by the late 19th century had become one of the wealthiest black men in the South. Robert Church learned some of his own family history when he received letters as an adult from his white former enslavers. In these letters, they offered their own self-serving versions of the past. His white enslavers told Robert that his grandmother, Lucy, had served as a seamstress and caregiver to her master's children. They described her as a beautiful French-speaking girl brought to the United States uh, between 1805 and 1810 on a ship from the French colony of Saint-Domingue. One letter recounted how Robert's grandmother had been sold to a rich Virginia tobacco merchant after a fierce bidding war. She had, he was told, attracted a great deal of attention by her beauty and the jewelry she wore and consequently brought a fancy price. Slaveholding men's interest in an enslaved woman's beauty was not a compliment. Being a fancy girl typically meant she was purchased to be sexually available to her white enslaver and for her reproductive capacity against her free agency to choose. Indeed, while enslaved on the tobacco merchant's plantation, Lucy gave birth to a half-white daughter, Emmeline. Lucy's second enslaver, a white Virginian named Dr. Patrick Burton, had participated in the first auction and finally managed to acquire her around 1825. A white Burton descendant explained to Robert that, my grandfather bought your grandmother Lucy, who at the time had a most beautiful young daughter that she named Emmeline. This Emmeline is your mother. He then casually revealed, my grandmother, my grandfather made my mother, who was then his baby, a present of this girl, Emmeline, for her maid. At age five, the enslaved Emmeline was barely older than her young mistress. In their letters, written long after the Civil War and Reconstruction, the Burton family insisted to Robert Church that his grandmother and mother were their beautiful prize slaves who never did any menial work. 
Although it is true that they did know agricultural labor, they worked from very young ages as seamstresses, personal maids, and caretakers of the Burton children. Most heinously, the Burtons sold Lucy away from her child, Emmeline. A Burton descendant described this cruel separation of mother and daughter as a simple economic calculus. In the changing scenes of commercial life, Grandfather Burton had a debt and was forced to send 100 Negroes at one time from Virginia to Mississippi to be sold. Among the number was your grandmother, Lucy. She was bought by a very rich planter near Natchez, Mississippi, who gave her the same liberty of action our family had, and she became the seamstress of the family. Never in life was she treated as a slave. This event separated your mother and grandmother. Without empathy or irony, the letter writer could not see that this permanent forced separation was a searing illustration of the power of an institution that allowed a white family to have control over enslaved women like Lucy and Emmeline. Robert Church shared this letter with his daughter, Molly, who was by then a mother herself. She was haunted by this matter-of-fact recounting and recognized this uprooting as representative of the devastating familial destruction experienced by all enslaved people. After Emmeline was torn from her mother, Lucy, Dr. Burton allowed another white man to pursue his desire for her. Emmeline gave birth to Robert Reed Church in 1839 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Robert's biological father was a white friend of Dr. Burton, the luxury steamboat owner and enslaver, Captain Charles B. Church. Whenever any white man was uh, forced an enslaved woman to have sex, any resulting offspring belonged to her owner. Highlighting their white supremacy, as well as a manhood imbued with misogynistic racist violence, white men cemented their ties by sharing enslaved women. Dr. Burton gave Captain Church free and open access to the enslaved Emmeline. After Robert Church's mother, Emmeline, died when she was just 30 years old in 1851, the Burton family sold 12-year-old Robert to his biological father, Captain Church. Robert's father was now also his enslaver. Although Captain Church had promised the dying Emmeline that he would emancipate and educate their son, he never did so. During the Civil War, the still enslaved Robert Church courted 18-year-old Louisa Ayers, the enslaved daughter of a white Memphis attorney, T.S. Ayers. Robert and Louisa wed in 1862 in a ceremony attended by both of their white fathers and enslavers as the witnesses. Throughout her life, Molly Church Terrell called attention to the fact that the light skin color of many African-Americans was not happenstance. She insisted on using colored rather than black or Negro to describe African-Americans. In, in an 1896 debate over what to call the first national secular black women's organization, for instance, Terrell favored the National Association of Colored Women. This was not an attempt to deny her own or black women's African heritage. While studying for over two years in Europe, she recalled, somebody would say, you are rather dark to be an American, aren't you? Yes, I would explain. I am dark because some of my ancestors were Africans. I am proud of having the continent of Africa as part of my ancestral background. I am an African American. She emphasized that people of her race in the United States had many different shades of skin color, ranging from deep black to the fairest white. The word colored allowed her to highlight the harsh reality that those with African heritage in America, especially black women had been raped by white men. For Terrell, the word colored was an important reminder of black women's lack of autonomy, but also their insistence on asserting and gaining that autonomy. Mary Church Terrell and her husband, the first black municipal court judge in Washington DC, Robert H. Terrell, were both born enslaved. They were intimately aware 
that Southern whites had been cultivating these nostalgic stereotypes about loving mammies on plantations with extended families made up of contented enslaved people and their white masters. White revisionist stories about slavery, as well as depictions of reconstruction as a disastrous failure, had become the dominant national narrative by the early 1920s. Segregation had hardened and spread across the nation. Rising nativism against immigrants, non-Protestants, and people of color resulted in the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan, which enjoyed a huge surge in popularity and membership in the 20s. In 1922, the Terrell couple was directly confronted by white Southerners' idealized views of their enslaved mammies. Robert Terrell received a letter from Mrs. J. Douglas Cheney of Virginia after the death of her 92-year-old father, Robert's former enslaver. Like other whites, Cheney thought nothing of waxing nostalgic to her dear old mammy's biological son about how much his mother had loved her white charges. Cheney referred to Robert's mother, Louisa Ann Coleman Terrell, as Aunt Louise Ann and as my dear old mammy whom I loved as well as I did my dear mama. She was a dear old soul and she did love us children so dearly. The popular myth of the contented plantation slave was supported by White's conviction that enslaved people had no aspirations for their children. If they did, they were not taken seriously. Thus, Cheney mocked Louisa Ann's pride in her son, thoughtlessly telling him, Mammy was always so proud of Robert. She would put on extra airs with her mouth when she would talk about you. Cheney thought it was amusing that Louisa Ann called her son by his full name rather than a diminutive. African-Americans could only be objects of affection from white slave-owning families and their descendants if they remained subordinate. Missing from Cheney's caricature is the fact that Louisa Ann Coleman Terrell was a woman of aspirations who knew who her heroes were and what ideals she held dear. Robert Terrell's younger sister, Laura, told a story about their mother that conveyed her full humanity. Inspired by reading her sister-in-law Molly Church Terrell's article, I Remember Frederick Douglass, Laura wrote to her recalling that during Reconstruction, when they lived in Washington, DC, Mama and I were walking along and she saw the Honorable Frederick Douglass and stopped him to tell him of her admiration for him and that she had named a son for him, Fred D. Henry. She told him that she wanted me to be able to say that I had shaken hands with him. He raised his silk hat as she spoke to him and he shook hands with me with a courteousness that I have never forgotten. Robert Terrell's mother valued education for her children, but she had been forbidden to read or write as a slave. After emancipation, she never learned to write and may not have been able to read. Laura recalled, the dictation I used to take down from Ma's lips when writing for her. Judge Terrell certainly lived up to his mother's hopes for he learned Greek and Latin and gained a higher education from Harvard University, just like the white Terrell men who had enslaved him. His mother had asserted her autonomy, race pride, and clear expectation that her children, less than a generation removed from slavery, could achieve great things and contribute to the status of African-Americans. Mary Church Terrell, too, had had contact with the enslavers of her mother, Louisa Ayers Church, and her grandmother, Eliza. She had been glad to hear the memories of the white Ayers family about her deceased maternal grandmother. But her grandmother, Eliza's stories to her about the horrors of slavery ensured that she would never romanticize it. Terrell was haunted, too, by the experiences of her enslaved relatives on her father's side. Many a time I have lived over that parting scene when Emmeline, my paternal grandmother, who was then only a small child, was sold from her mother never to see her again. Often have I suffered the anguish which I know that poor slave mother felt when her little girl was torn from her arms forever. 
pivoting from this memory of her own family's history to white Americans' nostalgia for slavery in the early decades of the 20th century. She continued, when slavery is discussed and somebody rhapsodizes about the goodness and kindness of masters and mistresses towards their slaves in extenuation of the cruel system, it is hard for me to conceal my disgust. There is no doubt that some slaveholders were kind to their slaves. Captain Church was one of them, and this daughter of an enslaved father is glad thus publicly to express her gratitude to him. But the anguish of one slave mother from whom her baby was snatched away outweighs all the kindness and goodness which were occasionally shown a fortunate favored slave. Highlighting the hypocrisy of whites who professed to love their mammies, Terrell regularly re recounted a piece of her family history to white audiences. Both of my grandfathers were white. Charlie McCormick, grandson of my grandmother's master, rushed to see me and kiss my grandmother before he went and when he returned from school. He hugged and kissed her saying, oh, mammy, mammy, I'm so glad to see you. Yet, in spite of their great shows of affection, Terrell observed, neither of her white grandfathers nor their families ever made any move to liberate their slaves. I would be a slave today if emancipation had been delayed till the South voluntarily freed the slaves, she said. In addition to the weight of her own family history of enslavement, the daily humiliations of racism were part of a broader problem of inequality in the US that served as a driving force motivating Terrell's unceasing civil rights and feminist activism. She wanted to provide all black women, including herself and her daughters, with a new American society based on gender and racial equality, a country in which young black women could grow up expecting to vote and be full citizens, to be free from sexual assaults or constant aspersions on their sexual purity, as well as to be free of the equally pernicious but opposite stereotype of black women as asexual black mammies. Terrell's black feminist voice was insistent, clear, and powerful. She identified herself as a colored woman in a white world who experienced both racism and sexism throughout her life. She said, a white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. Colored men have only one, that of race. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in the country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Terrell and other black women intellectuals in the decades around the turn of the 20th century, a group that include, included Frances Watkins Harper, Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Talbert, and Fanny Barrier Williams, created a modern intersectional black feminism to help envision this new world and make it a reality. Articulating the interconnected nature of African-American women's lived experience, Terrell built onto a framework of black feminist thought that stretched back to Phyllis Wheatley's early abolitionist poetry, to new Negro womanhood, and later to Alice Walker's womanism and Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality. Thus, thinking of the histories of her own enslaved grandmothers and mother, Terrell rejected the spread of revisionist histories that enshrined the antebellum era as a better, more harmonious time. Skewering White's nostalgia for their mammies, she forcefully protested in 1923 when the US, had the, uh, U.S. Senate had the temerity to pass the United Daughters of the Confederacy-sponsored bill to build a national monument to the faithful colored mammies of the South. It hurt her that this bill passed in the Senate just weeks after yet another devastating defeat of the dire anti-lynching anti bill. And a year after the Lincoln Memorial for this, you know, named for the so-called great liberator was without any sense of irony on the part of the organizers dedicated in front of a segregated audience. The mainstream white newspaper, the Washington Evening Star published an article titled Old Mammy's Memorial, endorsing the bill's passage. 
Affection and attachment between the white child and its colored nurse were the rule. The proposal will be received with pleasure by a great number of men and women, a large proportion of whom are not old enough to have had a regular colored mammy before the Civil War. There is a happy and tender sentiment behind the proposal. The colored mammy was an institution in the South and border states worthy of being symbolized in stone and bronze. At first, the main debate came from a white male sculptor named Ulrich Stonewall Jackson Dunbar, whose name is a tribute to the Confederate general. Dunbar charged that his earlier design for a Mammy monument, which he had made about 16 years before, was stolen by the sculptor George Julian Zolnay, which is the image we saw first. The Washington Post quoted Dunbar as saying, why, look how the mammy is holding the white baby in my statue and doing the same in his. See the treatment of the pickaninnies trying to have their mother pay attention to them? It is the same idea. But the real controversy came after fierce opposition to the bill's passage from Black women, including Molly Church Terrell and Hallie Quinn Brown, who represented the National Association of Colored Women and the NAACP. Terrell's 1923 letter to the editor entitled The Black Mammy Monument was first published in the Washington Evening Star. She jumped at the opportunity to expose White's racism through her searing critique of the Black Mammy myth. White's sentimental affection for their Black Mammies repackaged slavery as a benign institution. The proposed monument was an erasure of the violence and pain experienced by enslaved women and their families, Terrell charged, and was part of an effort to perpetuate Black women's subordination. Terrell's defiant critique of the planned monument struck a nerve and received widespread attention. Her editorial was widely reprinted in Black and white newspapers, with its largest circulation via the Literary Digest, which had almost 1 million readers, although Terrell was disappointed that it reprinted her words without attributing authorship to her. Other leading Black activist club women also wrote outraged editorials. The leadership of the national NAACP based in New York City, especially W.B. Du Bois, who was the editor of the NAACP's um, magazine, The Crisis Magazine, also strongly opposed the monument. When the black male leaders of the Washington DC branch were contacted by the national leaders to see how they wanted to fight it, they declined to fight against the erection of the monument. These out of touch men replied that they did not want to alienate poor Southern black migrants in the district by, as they put it, seeming to mock the statue in an overly highbrowed way. Fundamentally misjudging the situation, local elite black men in the NAACP feared that formerly enslaved women who had served as caretakers for white children might be upset if the civil rights group objected to this tribute. Black women of all classes had no similar doubts. Many of their own enslaved grandmothers and mothers had been forced to work as caretakers for other women's children. Terrell's editorial began by condemning the Evening Star's recent endorsement of the proposed monument, and then she cut right to the heart of the myth of the unproblematic love whites imagined they had given and received from enslaved women. Colored women all over the United States stand aghast at the idea of erecting a black mammy monument in the capital of the United States. The condition of the slave woman was so pitiably, hopelessly helpless that it is difficult to see how any woman, whether white or black, could take any pleasure in a marble statue to perpetuate her memory. Being forced to care for white children came at a price. As she put it, the black mammy was often faithful in the service of her mistress's children while her heart bled over her, over her own little babies who were deprived of their mother's ministrations and tender care, which the white children received. Although she conceded that they did their jobs as, caretaker, as caretakers well, Terrell insisted her readers see enslaved black women as three-dimensional human beings who were psychologically tormented by their enslavement. 
and she repeated the trope that she had talked about before, the anguish suffered by one Black mammy whose children were snatched from her embrace and sold away from her forever, outweighed in the balance all the kindness bestowed on any slave woman fortunate enough to receive it. Terrell refused to romanticize, normalize, or excuse a cruel imbalance of power. Knowing that white Southerners were actively rewriting the history of enslavement, Terrell observed, surely in their zeal to pay tribute to the faithful services rendered by the black mammy, the descendants of slaveholding ancestors have forgotten the atrocities and cruelties incident to the institution of slavery itself. Calling attention to other sins of white slaveholders, Terrell reminded her white audience that the varied skin complexions of African-Americans had a history. The black mammy had no home life. Legal marriage was impossible for her. If she went through a farce ceremony with a slave man, he could be sold away at any time from her or she might be sold from him and be taken as a concubine by her master, his son, the overseer, or any other white man on the place who might desire her. Thinking of her own white grandfathers, Terrell noted, it frequently happened that on the same plantation with the children of his white wife, little bronze images of the master might be seen who sometimes resembled their white father more than his legitimate offspring did. White men were not solely responsible for the sexual abuse of African-American women. Terrell indicted Southern white women for their complicity in the crimes committed by their husbands and sons. Hoping to shame white women into abandoning their support for the Black Mammy Monument, she took the same approach she had done for years in her speeches at social purity conferences. When one considers the extent to which the Black Mammy was the victim of the passion and power of her master or any other white man who might look with lustful eyes upon her, it is hard to understand how the wives, mothers, and sisters of slave owners could have submitted without frequent and vigorous protests to such degradation of the womanhood of any race. And it is harder to understand why their descendants should want to behold a perpetual reminder of the heart-rending conditions under which Black mammies were obliged to live. Asserting the authority of the African-American community to define and value itself, Terrell turned acerbic. If the Black Mammy Monument is ever erected, which the dear Lord forbid, there are thousands of colored men and women who will fervently pray that on some stormy night, the lightning will strike it and the heavenly elements will send it crashing to the ground so that the descendants of black mammies will not be forever reminded of the anguish of heart and the physical suffering which their mothers and grandmothers of the race endured. In response to her editorial, Terrell received grateful letters from people all around the country. William L. Reed of Boston wrote, please permit me to express my appreciation for your splendid letter, which appeared in the Boston Herald of today. It is calm, dignified and convincing and a stinging indictment of the hypocritical element representing the movement. One might well be pardoned for rejoicing over the occasion which inspired such a classic from a woman of the race. Um, sorry. NACW and NAACP leader Mary B. Talbert of Buffalo, New York, who graduated from Oberlin College just two years after Terrell, asked for typed copies of several of her articles, including the one about the Black Mammy Monument. A friend showed me this last denouncement of yours and I laughed until my sides hurt and I had to hold them when I read that statement of yours where you said that you hoped lightning would strike if it were erected. I said, oh Lord, if the white people ever read this article, they will be afraid to erect that monument in Washington. I want to reproduce these articles in woman's voice. White people did take notice. The Senate's passage of the bill led to so many protests that it never got out of committee in the House. Denying an easy or universal sisterhood based on gender 
throughout her activist career, Terrell insisted that white and black women's experiences could not be conflated. Describing white American racism as a form of assault and battery committed on a human being's soul, she called attention to the difference race made in black women's lives. Terrell bluntly told white women reformers, I assure you that nowhere in the United States have my feelings been so lacerated, my spirit so crushed, my heart so wounded. Nowhere have I been so humiliated and handicapped on account of my sex as I have been on account of my race. But rather than letting humiliation stop her, Molly Church Terrell created a distinctive black feminist voice that centered the protection of black women, offered them hope, and even used humor as a way to achieve equality. She imagined more for her race and her gender and articulated that vision as she battled the forces of intolerance. When we get to our chat discussion soon, I'd like to hear from students in the class about whether and how the Black Mammy Monument debate is relevant for our present debates about whether or not to take down Confederate monuments today and what to put in their place, if anything. To give you some context beforehand, Today's current data on Confederate monuments is being compiled by the Southern Poverty Law Center on its website, and it tries to stay as current as it can. There are still approximately 1,700 Confederate monuments, statues, flags, place names, and other symbols in public places across the country, not counting the approximately 2,000 markers, battlefields, museums, and cemeteries that commemorate the Confederate dead, let alone the many hundreds of statues of staunch segregationists. Approximately 115 of these Confederate monuments had been removed before the summer of 2020 uprisings. The numbers have changed since the protests surrounding the police murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It appears that another 90 or so have come down since then. And one example is the infamous Robert E. Lee Memorial in Richmond, Virginia, which has been the site of a lot of protests. And in this case, you can see the image of George Floyd and uh, the Black Lives Matter BLM uh, projected onto the monument at night. Um, but it's been in the court system and the courts are deliberating about whether and when Governor Northam can take it down. So in the meantime, this is what it looks like today as the monument still stands, but behind new fencing that keeps people from it. In contrast to this situation where many of these monuments still are standing, fewer than 100 monuments nationwide pay tribute to the civil rights movement. But we have seen, I hope, that monuments can work to perpetuate white supremacy, but they can also work to dismantle it. And I think the perfect example of a way to use a monument to dismantle white supremacy and the myths of reconstruction would be to look at the stunning National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. This is a memorial, when you walk into it, your face level with a coffin-sized tomb-like structures that have the county and the state and the people who were lynched in that county of each state. And as you walk through the monument, uh, the coffin-like objects raise above your head as if you're experiencing um, the view of looking up at people who have been lynched. It's a very powerful and amazing monument that includes sculptures outside, including this one called Rise Up. And I'd like to argue that these symbols of white supremacy have no business in our public spaces, but that there is a need to commemorate with things like the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, all of those who have led the fight to expand full citizenship rights and equality for all. And so what I'd like to do is stop sharing my screen 
and turn to um, the chat to see what kinds of questions or thoughts people might have about um, what we're talking about here. So the first question is, was there any organized resistance to other Confederate monuments that were erected during this time? And that's from uh, Ashley. So um, I do think that um, there were other protests. The 1923 Black Mammy Monument was a source of a lot of attention because it was supposed to be a national monument. And I think that the idea that it would be, you know, part of our heritage at a national level struck people as really problematic. Um, also that Confederate monument in Arlington National Cemetery was also controversial because some people who were strong union veterans did feel that that was problematic to bring in uh, Confederates, soldiers, and to give them space like that. But that didn't last long because this idea of national white reconciliation really did take off. And most white Americans did, in fact, endorse that point of view by the time you get to the turn of the century. Another question is, when thwarted by protest, did the United Daughters of the Confederacy tie, try different uh, tactics in the way that McCray documents in the book that we read the other day, uh, another week, called um, Mothers of Masses, Massive Resistance? Um, absolutely. The United Daughters of the Confederacy never gave up trying to create these different kinds of monuments. Um, sometimes they move back into a more local sphere, which is something that McCray talks about, that uh, it was easier in some cases to put up monuments within their own towns and cities and villages uh, where they had a lot more local control. Um, so the other thing that they did was really work on curriculum in the high school and elementary school textbooks to make sure that uh, this, the Civil War was being taught and the Reconstruction era was being taught in a way that would fit with, in effect, the Black Mammy myth. So I do think that that's part of what was going on. Another student asks or says, given my interest in museums, I was wondering what you think the afterlife of these Confederate monument, monuments should be. Is there a space for them to be interpreted respectfully in museums or historic sites, or would that never be appropriate? And in fact, I'd love it if other students would um, enter into the chat your ideas about whether that is uh, something that would be appropriate. I do think that it is appropriate to find places in museums um, or ways to commemorate uh, or or recognize these pieces of art and or historic relics <laughs> because they do have meaning and they do tell us something about our past. I don't think it's okay to leave them where they are and put up a plaque that explains what they, you know, why they were, let's say, white supremacist and racist, because I think that gives them too much power. If it's in the middle of a town square, or if it's on, uh, you know, a big boulevard in the center of a city, and you see that, and you know that that ideology, or this is what a lot of people feel is, you know, when I walk into this place, I don't feel welcome here, right? Because I see this as a sign of hostility. So they do need to be moved, but they don't necessarily all need to be destroyed. So there is a balance there. Do any other people have thoughts on that? Do you think it's, um, I mean, there are also a lot of them, so I don't know that we need every single one, um, but there's a possibility that we could find ways to incorporate them in various kinds of spaces. And in fact, President Trump passed a law or maybe an executive order when he was in office that said that nobody could try to remove the Confederate memorial 
from Arlington National Cemetery. So he was aware that that might be a contested space and wanted to be sure to do that. Um, someone says, I agree. I don't think they should be publicly displayed the way they are now. They definitely need careful interpretation if they are to be saved. I mean, one of the things to think about is the fact that um, other countries, including Germany, and we've talked about this before, have done a pretty good job. Berlin really has a lot of museums that share the artifacts of unsavory uh, moments in their past, including the Nazi past, and uh, definitely provide excellent contextualization and interpretation of these things so that they don't become um, objects that are sac sacralized, where they turn into something that's sacred. So yeah, um, somebody else says, I agree that it is appropriate to interpret them in museums with context and information about who erected those monuments. Many people do not know that the UDC played large roles in erecting Confederate monuments. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think one of the things that we see is that there's um, this notion that I referred to that these monuments were all done exactly, you know, five minutes after the end of the Civil War by these grieving relatives. And if that were the case, it doesn't necessarily change the fact that they're monuments to white supremacy. But this notion that they're more um, a part of that grieving process and less about politics or less about asserting control is harder to believe when most of the monuments didn't even come about until the very late, mostly after 1895. So in that context, the, the fact that they're trying to really change the story and that it fits so perfectly into this moment when there is the so-called black mammy craze. And you know when you're starting to see a shift um, completely away from reconstruction, but also toward uh, Jim Crow at the national level. And one of the things that I think that we could talk about is the fact that um, Woodrow Wilson, who we saw uh, giving the unveiling speech and talking about national reconciliation, by which he, of course, met whites. Um, he has been recognized for his role in perpetuating and um, institutionalizing racism through both this segregation of the uh, federal government. But also, uh, recently, Princeton University took his name off of all their buildings and the Woodrow Wilson Institute is no longer called the Woodrow Wilson Institute. And I have to admit, I can't remember what they're calling it now, but that's an, you know one of these things. Um, another student asks, do you think that the controversy over Christopher Columbus monuments fits in with this story about Confederate monuments? And I would say yes. I mean, here at UD, we have a new, um, this year, we, we've created a UD anti-racism initiative, and within that, there's a subcommittee called uh, Legacies of Enslavement and Dispossession at UD, which is really looking at the question of not just enslavement and its history to our campus, but also um, dispossession of Native Americans. And one of the things that is clear is when you're talking about monuments to white supremacy, a lot of people think that the Columbus statues play that same role by heroizing someone who came in and helped uh, with an imperialist colonizing project that led to a lot of destruction um, of Native American lands and also lives. And so in that context, um, of course, there are lots of co uh, controversies in, um, you know, uh, Philadelphia, for example, um, but elsewhere where these um, monuments have been taken down, but Italian Americans are seeing it as part of their cultural heritage. And so right now, um, some of those monuments in Philadelphia are boarded up and preserved, but there, there's a controversy with the city council and the mayor about what to do next. Um, somebody else says that at the University of Texas within the Dolph Briscoe Center for African American or for American history, the statue of Jefferson Davis 
moved from the center of campus to the museum. And then next to the statue, curators explain the history of the statues, their context, as well as the student activism to remove them. Does that offer an appropriate balance? History isn't being erased, but we also aren't uh, honoring it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea and it makes a lot of sense. Um, another student says, just for a point of information, that the Woodrow Wilson Institute is now called the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. <laughs> and um, I think that, you know, that, that that's something that we can look at. I do want to quickly share my screen again and show you a couple of last images of some current uh, monuments that I think um, will give you a sense of this. These are not, uh, or may be up, but they were not yet up when I, when I got this photo, um, or the photo might be a little old, but it's of um, this Memphis suffrage monument uh, talking about equality trailblazers. And the um, person in the middle is supposed to be Mary Church Terrell, although to be honest, I could not recognize her from this image. And over at the far right, it's um, Ida B. Wells. So um, there are attempts to create new monuments that um, tell different stories. And another version of this is in New York Central Park. It's called the Women's Rights Pioneers uh, Monument. And it has Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. This was one that was controversial because at first it was not going to include a black woman. And then after protest from people in New York City and elsewhere, um, the sculptor was asked to include Sojourner Truth. Um, and then when the first model came back, uh, she was sitting in a way that um, didn't have any dynamism to her. So people protested again and she went ahead and had to redo her sculpture so that Sojourner Truth is both talking and her hands are lifted as if she's expressing herself. Um, you have now Sojourner Truth talking and Susan B. Anthony is supposed to be reading and Elizabeth Cady Stanton is supposed to be writing. Some people have criticized this as being tokenism and have said, that you know these people didn't work together, but that's not actually true. Susan, uh, I mean Elizabeth Cady Stanton had uh, Sojourner Truth as a guest within her house, which of course at the time was quite um, a radical thing to do. So even though both Stanton and Anthony uh, often used racist language and resorted to racist ideas when they were trying to focus on getting white women the right to vote. At various points, they also worked with uh, Black women. So that's another example. And the last one that I wanted to show you was um, in Virginia, where uh, this is a sketch of some of those sculptures that are up but aren't um, out yet in the sense that it's a pandemic. Um, but it's called the uh, Turning Point Suffragist Memorial. And Mary Church Terrell, who did uh, picket the White House with the National Women's Party as one of the only documented uh, Black women we know about of about three um, who did so, uh, is being represented along with Carrie Chapman Catt and Alice Paul. So I'm hoping that we'll have opportunities to be able to see more uh, innovative and interesting monuments to help replace some of the ones that we're taking down. And so that's, you know, one of my thoughts, and I just wanted to make sure to share that with you. Uh, the other thing that somebody asked is, in what ways, if any, do you see the myth of the mammy persist today? And um, as just as a way to uh, kind of close us out, I would say that you see it in movies and popular culture when you have um, a Black woman in a supportive role who's a cleaner or a cook or a housekeeper who um, white people in the family, you know, can tell their problems to um, and who kind of plays the subordinate but comic or nurturing um, sidekick almost. Um, and there are a lot of movies, including <laughs> problematically movies that are supposed to be about the civil rights movement and movies that are supposed to be centering black women, but actually keep them in these um, more problematic spots. So um, I don't necessarily know that I've seen 
mammy statues today, but for sure these kinds of ideas um, are still part of our popular culture. So thanks so much for all of your questions and comments, and it's been a, a good class, and um, I'll see you again next week. But bye. Lectures in History is a weekly podcast taking you to the classrooms of some of the country's leading universities. Thanks for listening. You might also be interested in another C-SPAN podcast, Book Notes Plus. Just like our long-running Book Notes program, Brian Lamb has wide-ranging conversations with authors and historians. The 30-minute podcast is available every Tuesday. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.